Welcome to the final episode of season two of Pull Quotes. I'm Michal Stein. And I'm Lydia Abraha. So we've come to the end of season two. Can't believe it. It's it, been a wild ride. It is 18 episodes. Very auspicious. Wow. This yeah. is it. Yeah. Lydia, what what have you enjoyed working on this season? Um, I have to say, like, meeting a lot of different a lot of great journalists that have done a lot of amazing work and I think it it kind of just brings you closer to like the industry and like learning more about how the inner workings of the media industry works you know yeah it it's definitely nice to have an excuse to reach out to these journalists that I have been admiring for so long and uh, whose work I've been reading or listening to and it's been it's been a great excuse to just sit and talk to someone for 20 minutes about how they do their work. Exactly, exactly. We hope all of you have learned something too this season. We want to thank you for listening in this season, and the Ryerson Review of Journalism will be back with a third season of Pull Quotes in the fall with new host producers. But first, we have a magazine launch to look forward to. They're printed, they're bound, they're sitting in our executive producer, Sonia Fata's office. Next week, we're launching the spring 2019 issue of the Ryerson Review of Journalism. We're celebrating with this party at Oakham House on April 17th at 7 p.m. And we got links to tickets in the show notes. It's been kind of a difficult year to talk about journalism, especially in Toronto. The change of government has not been kind to journalists. On a provincial level, we're now dealing with a government that's openly hostile to the media. And we'll talk about that more later on in this episode. Business models have become that much more important to think about as we've seen brutal rounds of layoffs in the last few months. Our colleagues touch on these issues and more in this year's Ryerson Review of Journalism. Today on Pull Quotes, we're bringing on a few of our RJ colleagues, Jordana Goldman, Jordan Curry, Hannah Ziegler, and Rihanna Jackson-Kelso, to talk about their features launching with this year's magazine. With me in studio today is Jordana Goldman. Jordana is the social media and newsletter editor for the Ryerson Review of Journalism. So if you've been getting our weekly emails in your inbox or you follow us on Twitter, uh, it's Jordana that you are hearing from every day. And we're very lucky to have Jordana with us today. Thanks so much for joining us on Pull Quotes. Hi, thanks for having me. So Jordana, you have been working on a digital feature for the last eight months that's going to be released next week. Can you tell us a bit about uh, what you've been reporting on? Sure. It's called Left Behind, and it's an exploration into the communities across Canada who have trouble accessing the internet, whether it's economics or geographics. But as journalism is progressively shifting online, I wondered, you know, who was being left behind in the process, who wouldn't have the equal access to the news um, as other communities, as other people. So if it's a democratic right, who's being left out? Can you talk a bit about uh, what you mean by democratic right? Like who, who says it's our democratic right to have the news? Sure. I mean... Basics, Charter of Rights and Freedoms says that, you know, we have the freedom of expression, freedom of information, um, and then society can only really function when a population is informed. And if we're not informed, that gets 
pretty scary, but if we're not all equally informed, is that okay? How did you find the people uh, to speak to who didn't have great access to internet? That was the most challenging aspect of reporting on this story. Uh, I was based in Toronto, and you know, due to lack of funding or resources, I had to work from Toronto, but it was a kind of comprehensive investigation into communities across Canada. I spoke to people in Nunavut, I spoke to people in Montreal, I spoke to people in Toronto, across Ontario. Uh, So I actually found the number one way to find sources were through other sources. So everyone was very passionate about the story and wanted to get it out there. And when I t- spoke to one person, they often gave me <laughs> upwards of five, ten people to speak to next. And so f- through the help of my sources, I found my other sources. And did you find, other than the fact that um, obviously your sources had trouble accessing the internet, um, but were they otherwise plugged into the news? Like how did things like um, radio and print fill in the gap left by uh, lack of access to online resources. Right. Uh, So there was, I found predominantly uh, in northern communities that were more secluded. So in my remote section, they relied more heavily on the radio and on print. However, my one source, Charlie Flowers from Rigolet, he says that there's only one print publication covering the entire region. And that's also not necessarily local information, that's not local news, and I mean, whether it's radio, whether it's print, a lot of my other sources say, well, if people are getting their information as it happens on their phones, why do other people have to wait for the news to come out the next morning, or wait to find out about natural disaster, wait to find out about, you know, a political change, wait for big changes, wait to be notified about big changes the day after, whereas other people are getting it in the moment. You're doing an online feature, so yours is gonna look, end up looking quite different than uh, all of the features that are in the print magazine. Can you talk a bit about the layout of your piece and why you decided to do it online? Sure, and I do understand the irony of doing an online project about the difficulties accessing the internet, Um, but I decided to do an online feature because I felt that this issue was really important and people have been commenting on the issues of internet access across Canada. It's not a new topic, but I find that, you know, it's become a bunch of numbers and a bunch of government policies and that's not, you know, the sexiest information. And I think that for people to really get invested in this and realize how much of an issue it is. Uh, I wanted to make it interactive and I wanted to make it a cool kind of exploration into various communities across Canada. So you'll find I have some background information on the landing page and as you scroll down, you'll find an interactive image, moving image that says urban, rural, remote. And you can click in and there are many features of each to kind of give you a sense of each, I guess, cohort but various communities and the last section is called the future to give you a glimpse into where the industry is going and how that will affect these communities and these people. So what uh, what drew you to this project in the first place? I found that there was a lot of talk around 
you know, journalism dying and how the shift to online is affecting jobs and affecting publications. And everyone was so focused on the journalists, but nobody was really thinking about the readers and how the shift from print to online was affecting readers. And when you do look into various communities, even, you know, we're based in Toronto, even in Toronto, um, whether it's price, whether it's geography, whether it's media literacy, people are kind of prevented from accessing the internet. Um, and access doesn't mean necessarily having it or not having it. It can also vary in levels. And we are so connected nowadays that people are getting updates on world news as it happens on their phones. And I just was wondering, you know, if that is becoming a right, it's protected under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, why should some people have more access than others? And why should some people be more informed than others just based on where they live or their income? And so I was wondering how this shift in journalism and in this industry is affecting not just you know the key players, but also people who read the news. Jordana, thank you so much for joining us on Pull Quotes today. It's always wonderful speaking with you. Thanks for having me, and I look forward to hearing what everyone has to say once they read my feature. In the guest chair right now, we have friend of the pod, Jordan Curry. Jordan, welcome back to Pull Quotes. Hi, thanks so much for having me on the last episode. So Jordan, your feature falls under the reporting on race package that we have uh, advertised on our front cover soon to be released. Can you tell us a bit about your story? Yes, so my story is called Framing the Story, Who Gets to Report on Race? And it is essentially about when journalists who are not a person of color or if they're not from a specific marginalized racial group, um, uh, when they are reporting in stories in ways that can negatively impact uh, those communities, how should they best report on these topics in the future? And I bring up the question of should they even at all? And it's a very nuanced essay. Um, I spoke to a lot of different journalists from several different backgrounds, and um, maybe this is a bit of a spoiler alert for my story that's in print, but essentially the conclusion really is there really isn't one answer or one path um, to that question, and that every story um, when involving race or any other uh, topic that needs to be handled with sensitivity, it really um, is a case-by-case situation. And how, how did you get interested in writing about this uh, topic? The inspiration came from uh, an NPR podcast that I heard a few years ago um, with Gene Demby, and who is a black journalist, and he uh, was talking on NPR about how he had seriously considered quitting uh, his position because he was reporting so much on black death and police brutality and all of these really harrowing topics that were directly related to his own identity. He really talked about how uh, black journalists cannot be the only people um, to be reporting on these issues because it's really unfair and it's burdening to have people of that community be expected to be the ones always taking it on, especially when they can have such negative impacts on mental health. Um, And that was really my inspiration because while I totally um, 
understood his point and it really spoke to me. I also wanted to look at some ways in which um, not journalists that were not of color or more specifically were white, the ways in which they could have framed a community in a negative light because they weren't of that background or they didn't have a lot of experience. And it's just overall um, looking at how to best combat these issues and how to avoid them in the future. I feel like this is an issue that comes up in a lot of things that we talk about, um, like the the benefits of um, getting the perspective of someone with lived experience, uh, a particular lived experience, and weighing that with, um, is it exploitative? Is it, um, is there some way in which uh, they end up getting taken advantage of? Or uh, if we're, if we're not focusing on that voice, then, you know, what kind of authenticity are you losing or um, what kind of perspectives aren't we getting? What did you learn from reporting on this story? Um, Well, I definitely learned so many things. Uh, I spoke to so many people and um, my handling editor, Sonia Fatah, she really gave me a lot of um, different paths that I could take for the story. Um, I think the number one thing that I would like to mention that I learned is that just because somebody is from a specific community that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be an expert on it or they're going to be immersed in every corner of that community and um, their identity shouldn't be reduced to that. And we can I guess I'll read more about this when the magazine comes out next Wednesday April 17th. Definitely. Jordan where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Jord underscore Curry. Jordan, thank you so much for all your wonderful contributions to Pull Quotes this season. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Joining me right now is Hannah Ziegler. You might remember Hannah from episode eight, our episode on Jewish media. Uh, Hannah co-produced that episode with me. So welcome back, Hannah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Hannah, can you tell us a little bit about your feature in this year's RRJ? Yeah, so I wrote about music critics in Canada, and I kind of knew going into this project that music criticism was something I wanted to explore because, you know, music critics in Canada, you kind of don't really see... um, them on a large scale usually like the positions at papers and magazines are kind of always um, under an umbrella arts critic term and music doesn't really have its own platform I find so I was curious to explore how it's evolved over time from you know like 50 60 years ago to being a really prominent job where the critic was kind of their word was taken as gospel to now where everyone has an opinion and you can just tweet about your favorite music or your least favorite music all the time. So I was exploring that contrast. So do you think that people really take Twitter criticism seriously at all? Um, I definitely think that there are some people who have a lot of followers on Twitter. So if they have, you know, a hot take or something on the newest album that came out or something an artist said or did and that tweet gets a lot of traction, they kind of have an authority because they're getting the most attention for their opinion. But on the other hand, a lot of people who tweet about music aren't necessarily the most 
knowledgeable compared to you know critics or people who are who have studied music for a long time so it's definitely this interesting position that everyone's in where you kind of have to take every opinion with a grain of salt and I think Twitter is a really good platform for sharing your thoughts and opinions on music but it's definitely not the only space to do so. Hannah what's your piece called? It's called Yesterday's Heroes and for people who don't know and I'm sure there's a lot of people who might not be familiar um, because it is referring to a Bay City Rollers song called Yesterday's Hero Um, and if you read my piece you'll find out what the significance of that is but there is a small anecdote that has to do with that band. What drew you to writing about music criticism? Well I consume mostly arts criticism and specifically music criticism and that's kind of where I see myself going in terms of my own work Um, and I've done a little bit of music writing myself so I was kind of interested in exploring um, other people's perspectives on it and getting a glimpse into a lot of prominent Canadian music critic personalities and I think that as a as a country that we have a lot of great Canadian talent, but we're sometimes kind of um, eclipsed by American publications and talent, I would say, just because, you know, they have so many resources. I just really wanted to dive a little bit deeper into our landscape. So when when budgets are so limited and, and resources are so limited, why do you think um, music journalism in Canada specifically is worth protecting and worth um, worth fighting for? I feel like it's rare to come across someone who just doesn't care about music. Anyone you talk to, especially meeting someone for the first time, often I feel like one of the first things you talk about is what music you're listening to. And I think it's just really a common ground between people. So for that reason, I think it's really important that we continue to have those conversations. And also, I was talking to Anupa Mystery Um, for the story who is a music critic and she was saying that music criticism goes beyond critiquing the actual musicality it can go into political topics especially in this year there's been so many different albums and artists that are really politically charged so I think it really complements current events and what's going on in the world and just I, I can't see music criticism ever fading despite budget cuts. Hannah, is there anything else uh, we should know about your piece before the magazine's launched? Um, I would just say that if you don't know who the Bay City Rollers are, please look at who they are before you read my piece and then you'll really understand the significance of their presence in the story. And where can people find you online? Uh, You can follow me on Twitter at Hannah R. Ziegler or on Instagram, same handle. Hannah, thank you so much for all your contributions to Pull Quotes this year. Thank you. Right now I have Rihanna Jackson Kelso, senior print editor, making her Pull Quotes debut. Rihanna, welcome to Pull Quotes. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Rihanna, can you tell me uh, what your piece is called and a little bit about what it's about? It's called When They Push, We Push Back. 
So it's about how journalists have been adapting in this age of politicians like Doug Ford and Donald Trump. Um, these people who have kind of made it their business to be adversarial with the press and to challenge the validity of the press, um, going into sort of the idea of fake news, trust in journalism, um, and just how reporters are using new and old methods to address these issues. And what drew you to this topic? Uh, Well, as someone who's in journalism school, um, someone who works as a journalist part-time, and someone who's hoping to get into the industry for my career, um, seeing all of the the loss of faith that a lot of people have in journalists lately has been really disheartening. Um, I see it more and more on social media, people talking about fake news or holding up uh, a frivolous BuzzFeed article as an example of why journalism is dying. And it really just made me want to delve a little bit more into the causes of that and how people are working around that. What were some of the challenges that you faced when you were reporting on this piece? Scope was definitely a challenge with this one. Um, There's just so much going on. Uh, I had a really big range of people I was trying to cover, journalists all across North America. I also get a little bit into what the reporting is like, not only in Ontario with Doug Ford, but also in a few other provinces with different premiers. And so there were just, I had to talk to a lot of people um, and sort of think about how to narrow all that down into something focused and relatable. And you actually uh, were in the Queen's Park Press Gallery last summer. You were the press gallery intern. Press gallery intern. Um, So when you were there in the first couple months of Doug Ford, uh, what did you notice? Um, What what concerned you from where you were standing? It It seemed like a very tumultuous change. There were a lot of issues with the new government adjusting to the traditional press government relationship. Um, I'm sure a lot of people have heard about the clapping. Can you explain what you mean by the clapping? Um, So during press conferences for a few months, starting in July, going through August, there would be staffers assembled at the back of the rooms where journalists had gathered to ask questions of ministers who were giving announcements. At the end of the press conferences, the staffers would start clapping to drown out reporter questions and to give the ministers a chance to duck out without answering Um, all the questions that reporters wanted to ask of them. Um, And it was getting to a point where a lot of the reporters got very angry about it. Obviously, um, it's a professional environment, and this was a big disruption, Um, you know, kind of a waste of taxpayer dollars as well, considering the staffers were supposed to be working. Um, That was, I think, the most concerning thing, because it was just such a blatant um, disruption of the jobs that the journalists were trying to do given that political reporting is one of the, um, it's, it's an essential pillar of democracy. And so to see to see people actively trying to disrupt that was really scary. What did you learn reporting on this piece? Um, I learned that as, as much as it's easy to be scared and to look at someone like Donald Trump or Doug Ford um, and sort of be fearful of the future of journalism, um, especially political journalism, uh, I learned that journalists are... Um, being very resourceful about this. They're finding a lot of good ways to get around it and push back. I came away from reporting on the piece ultimately with a sense of hope. It's always nice to end on a hopeful note, I think. Yeah, me too. Is there anything else uh, you want to say about your piece? Daniel Dale does a lot of really good work and everyone should check out what he's doing if you don't know about him already. Rihanna Jackson-Kelso, thank you so much for coming on 
the very last episode of Pull Quotes. And thank you, Michal, for all of your hard work. And where can people find you online? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Rihanna JK. That's R-H-I-A-N-N-A-J-K, not like the singer. And now for our final signature segment, Paul Quotes. Uh, we're just going to do one to end it off. So Lydia, can you tell us uh, what's this headline? So this headline uh, is in the Toronto Star. It says, Doug Ford attacks media for, quote unquote, mocking us over his opposition to federal carbon pricing. And it is written by Robert Benzie. So we heard Rihanna talking about... Um, the, the reporting she's been doing on the kind of antagonism from the Ford government towards journalists and all the ways that that is playing into what what the job now is, is dealing with um, dealing with a government that doesn't really want to talk to journalists. And this is something we've seen over and over over the course of the year. We've seen um, cabinet ministers refusing to talk to people, refusing to answer requests for comment. Um and so the, the article starts off, following the lead of U.S. President Donald Trump, Doug Ford is attacking the media. So this, uh, this article is talking about um, an email, a fundraising email that um, Ford sent to, um, I guess, his base, uh, to whoever gets these emails. Um, so this, um, this fundraising email is in the wake of the carbon tax being instituted. Um, You might have seen uh, these really funny photos of conservative representatives um, filling up at the gas tank before the price of gas went up, I think four cents or something like that. I mean, four cents a liter is a big big jump. Mm -hmm. The thing is that um, a lot of people were very openly mocking these uh, MPPs and... uh, and MPs on Twitter. So you saw a lot of, I mean, journalists and also just at people poking fun at, at these uh, at these politicians being so serious at the gas pump. Mm-hmm. So um, Lydia, tell us what he said in this email. Yes. So he said, I don't know if you get to follow the headlines, but this is bogus. The journalists are out there mocking us. He also goes on to say, they're laughing at us and signed Doug. <laughs> Our pull quote is what Benzie writes in the article. Uh, He writes, His appeal for donations for the Tories does not mention any specific reporter or news outlet. And I think what is so, like, this is a pretty quick news story, not very long. um, But what it is kind of signaling to me is, like, it's another step forward in a kind of like government attack on journalists and and he's not taking issue with one particular journalist saying one particular thing about the conservatives um it's not a certain news outlet's coverage it's not specific it's now he's put it's he's setting up a them against us kind of situation and um yeah and this is going right to his supporters inboxes yeah, it's like he's trivializing the media, right? Rihanna's article um, is kind of comparing the um, the Ford government's uh, 
interactions with media to the way that um, Trump's government is interacting with media in the U.S. And um, and this is another kind of direct link. And and Robert Benzie makes that link that now we're seeing we're seeing a very specific us versus them rhetoric coming from our government and a government being openly antagonistic towards the media isn't just bad for journalists. It's bad for everyone. And uh, this is the hopeful, happy note we're ending on. <laughs> at, uh, and something that I'm sure we'll see much more of over the coming months. And that's our show. Season two of Pull Quotes was produced by Michelle Stein and by me, Lydia Abraha. Thank you to Jordana Goldman, Jordan Curry, Hannah Ziegler, and Rihanna Jackson-Kelso for joining us today. A huge thank you to Angela Glover, who records us every week and makes us sound good, and to Lindsay Hanna, who puts our webpage together and makes sure the episode goes out and online each week. Thank you to our executive producer, Sonia Fata, for your patience and guidance and for keeping us on track, and to our ROJ professor, Stephen Tremper. The Ryerson Review of Journalism is launching next week and will be in bookstores across Canada, or you can go to roj.ca to subscribe to this year's issue. You can also pick up a copy at our launch party at Oakham House on Wednesday, April 17th at 7 p.m. Links to tickets are in the show notes. Next year's RRJ Masthead will bring pull quotes back sometime in the fall of 2019. But in the meantime, keep checking rrj.ca as the features from this year's magazine come online. You can find me on Twitter at Liddy Abraha and me at Michal Stein too. Thanks for listening and have a great summer. Hold up. 